This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. ChatGPT. If you haven't already heard of it or had a go yourself, trust me, it won't be long. Microsoft is in talks to invest $10 billion in OpenAI, the creator of the artificial intelligence bot ChatGPT. This week, that multi-billion dollar deal between Microsoft and OpenAI was confirmed, meaning this groundbreaking technology could soon be as normal a part of working life as the internet. So what is ChatGPT? Well, in essence, it's a chatbot, a really quite impressive chatbot. It can write essays, stories, and even haikus. Take it away, ChatGPT. Ian Sample Scribe. Pen on paper, words take flight. Truth in every line. So apart from having excellent taste, how clever is ChatGPT really? And is it a great jumping off point for human creativity? Or are we standing on the precipice of fully AI-generated books, art and podcasts? From The Guardian, I'm Ian Sample and this is Science Weekly. John Norton, you're the Emeritus Professor of the Public Understanding of Technology at the Open University and a Senior Research Fellow at Cambridge University. And you've written in The Observer about the hype and reality of chat GPT. First of all, can you just give us an overview? What is chat GPT and who's behind it? Chat GPT is essentially two things. It's what's called a large language model which was built by a company called OpenAI based in San Francisco. And by a large language model, what I mean is essentially a machine learning system which has been trained on a huge corpus of text. And then it's wrapped inside a computerized conversational system which can kind of handle interactions with people in normal language. So in a sense, it's a pretty sophisticated chatbot but chatbots have been around for a while so why did this one cause such a stir when it was launched back in december last year it caused a stir partly because most people hadn't been paying attention to large language models in the first instance and but secondly this was the first large language model that people could have interactions with you could have used the GPT part of ChatGPT beforehand, but most people who did so were geeks or researchers or people who were interested in this stuff. And then suddenly people said, oh, yeah, oh, this is what it's for. Wow, it can write stuff. And suddenly you get this explosion. It went to a million users in five days. Give us a sense of the sorts of things 
that it was doing that was impressing people so much, though? What impressed people was that it provided what they thought of as human-like competence. So, for example, when I, I write a column for The Observer every week, and I remember thinking, well, what I should do is I should ask ChatGPT to write my column for me and see what it looked like. And I said, right, in the style of John Norton, on the subject of whether or not machine learning models of language augment or replace uh, human intelligence. And it wrote me a column. It was bland, but the interesting thing was that it wrote something that wasn't nonsense. And for many people, that was the shock. Um, but it is basically what one of the leading researchers in this field, Timrit Gebru, called a stochastic parrot. In other words, it has read everything that's been published on the internet in the sense that it has absorbed it in its training set. And whenever you ask it to do something, it will immediately find things in its huge memory bank, which correspond to what you've asked, and then produce whatever it is it's found that's related to that. And it'll just parrot it back at you. And it's using probability, presumably, to work out what comes next after it's decided on what starts. Yes, all of it is probabilistic. So, for example, if you were to say to it, the quick brown fox jumped over the and left it hanging, as it were, then it will find hundreds of thousands of examples of that sentence in its memory, and it'll do an instant analysis of what's the probability that the next word is fence or whatever, and just pull it up. But it's not just like sentence completion, is it? I mean, if I were to ask ChatGPT to come up with an idea for a podcast episode, how would it come up with its response? It would look for specifications for podcasts, um, publicity material for existing podcasts. Remember, there's an unimaginable amount of stuff that it has read, that there's almost always something relevant to anything you might say to it. Um, the, the most distressing thing about it and sometimes is that it always has an authoritative voice. It doesn't say, well, I don't really know about this, but maybe it could be. An... It doesn't do that. It always comes out with confident kind of statements. Um, so it's a very, very good uh, vehicle, for example, for misinformation. It can only do what it's got in its memory, as it were. If it's perceived as being creative, it's because it has found connections in existing stuff that nobody has spotted before. Since it launched, there's been a lot of discussion about whether ChatGPT and its visual counterpart, Dali, could erode the ability of artists, writers, poets, maybe even science journalists, to make a living. But not everyone sees it as a threat. I was gobsmacked. It was the first time I've played around with any sort of tech like that that really made me stop in my tracks, and it was producing stuff of such high quality that I could very much see myself being able to use it in all sorts of really cool ways. That's children's book author Patrick Jackson. And surprisingly, he's a chat GPT enthusiast. I wanted to know how he could see himself using it in his job. I wear two hats in my work, one of which is as an author of educational materials for language learners. So basically, I write English course books for young learners. So you could uh, ask it to give me a list of 20 colours. And then you could say, make some sentences using each of those colours. And then you could say, write me a longer text using the colours and add in family members. And then you could ask it to write some questions about that text. 
So these are all the kinds of things that one would do writing a course book. Now, it's not absolutely perfect, but it certainly takes about one minute to do work that would take hours to do. So that's one thing that I, I thought was just unbelievably cool about this software. And then in my other capacity, I run an environmental program for children called Picker Pals. And this is a story-based program that gets kids out litter picking with their families. So basically, I need loads of little cute stories. And can I read you a little snatch that, of something that it wrote? Absolutely. Go ahead. My input was, please give me a story about a litter picking sloth called Y and a crocodile called Kai who go to the forest and are appalled by the litter they see in a river. And the story that it came up with was, once upon a time in a lush green forest, there lived a litter picking sloth named Y and a crocodile named Kai. They were the best of friends and loved nothing more than to explore the forest and all of its wonders together. One day, while out for a walk, they came across a river that was polluted with litter. Y and Kai were appalled by the sight and couldn't believe that such a beautiful place could be so dirty. They knew they had to do something to help, etc., etc. Quite nice, you know, as a start, anyway. What have you found from your sort of experimentation so far that it's not so good at? I mean, one of the things that is on my mind is that if this is essentially a probability machine, a prediction engine, it seems that's going to drive it towards really obvious sort of cliched responses, you know, once upon a time on a dark and stormy night sort of text. I agree at this point in its development, it certainly is rubbish at jokes. And I know because I'm a dad. The other thing it lacks is it lacks that sort of nutty randomness that you get where you almost deliberately juxtapose or use things in a creative way that uh, it doesn't do that. I think that I will use it to generate a bunch of ideas when I'm sitting there twiddling my thumbs waiting to you know, see what comes out of the subconscious. Not that all of them or even half of them are going to be ideas that you'd use, but just to sort of brainstorm with yourself almost. Tell me how your colleagues have reacted to ChatGPT, your, your friends in the sort of same business, because you strike me as quite unusual um, as a creative person seeming to be excited by this new AI. There are people who find this really frightening. And I think there are certain people whose jobs will certainly be pared away. And I think there will be parts of projects that can be done by AI. It will expedite the reduction in the value of what certain people's jobs are. Now, what it means for the big publishers, I think, is that, you know, more so than even now, their brand and their reputations and their history and experience are going to come into play as a sort of a seal of approval of quality. It's interesting, and I think it's going to it's going to rattle things up a lot. John, let's talk about where this ChatGPT bot and you know presumably updates that will be coming. Let's talk about what difference you think it will make. You know, there's it's caused a real stir. Some people have been super excited. Some people have started worrying about the impact on particular jobs. Where do you see it being used? How do you think society is going to take this on? What impact do you see coming from it? 
whenever one of a radically different or new technology arrives, especially in the communications field, we tend to grossly overrate its uh, initial impact and grossly underestimate its long-term impact. So there's a kind of moral panic. For example, educationalists are, are very concerned about this because it means, well, how will we be able to grade our students anymore? We won't, we won't know if, if they wrote it or if the machine wrote it and the rest of it. Well, that indeed might well be the case, and, and experimentally it seems to be already. But the question it poses really is, why did we have to build an educational system which has only one way of rating students, i.e. get them to write essays and then, and then grade them? That's a very poor way of actually um, determining whether students and people are learning stuff or not. Um, that's one bit of it. But, but the other bit of it is that given that it's not going to be uninvented and it's going to get more powerful rather than less, well, what do we do then? Well, the answer is we, we take it as a given and then we move on. Uh, for example, if you're, if you're a teacher and you have to grade your students using essays and the rest of them, well, what, what you might do next is you say, well, I want you to get GPT to write an essay for you on this topic, and then I want to, I want to hear your critique of it. It's a bit like having the invention of spreadsheets. Uh, they change the way in which business schools work and indeed in which all organizations work. Um, so what happens? Well, what happens is we find a way of being augmented by it. Based on what we've been discussing here, I mean, we're not far from the point where we're all going to be potentially consuming stories and art and what have you that's being created by artificial intelligence in a sense. I'm, I'm interested in whether you think a work of art has sort of more intrinsic value if it's created by a human than if it's created by something like ChatGPT. Well, I'm kind of old-fashioned. I'm, I'm with Walter Benjamin on this stuff. Um, original works by humans are what interests me. The biggest danger with digital technology is that, especially in the hands of the corporations which control it, is that its fundamental um, impact is to try and dehumanize people, is to try and eliminate us from anything interesting and monopolize it in all kinds of ways for the benefit of corporations. And when I was using the internet in the, in the 1980s, I remember thinking, this, wow, it has wonderful potential for democratization, for liberation, for human empowerment and all the other things. What has happened to it is that it has been captured by corporations. And ChatGPT is the next step in that process. It may well be that the corporate capture becomes comprehensive, in which case the thing will turn out to be kind of a disaster in the sense that it will further corral human beings into pens or walled gardens which are controlled by large corporations. If we wish to protect humanism, as it were, then we have to ensure that that control over this wonderful technology is actually broken by states and by democratic institutions. John, huge thanks for coming on and taking us through all this. Okay, well, thank you for the invitation. Thanks again to both John Norton and Patrick Jackson. You can find a link to John's article on ChatGPT on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. The producer was Madeline Finlay, the sound designer was Solomon King, and the executive producer was Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian.
Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.